You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we begin, before we open our time in prayer, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Let's open our time in prayer together. Father, we do bow before Your Word because we need Your help. Each of us here does. We need Your grace, not only to have Your Word preached and to preach it, but also to respond wisely to it and obediently to it. We pray that You would be here to teach us from Your Word now as we open it up and we study it together. We ask that You would alert our hearts and our conscience and our spirits to the necessity of trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And may we walk away from here today and from at least from this day forward and forevermore be able to say that we place no confidence in the flesh, but we glory only in Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, Philippians chapter 3, we're diving back into that after one week break to talk about the resurrection. The subject of the resurrection is going to come up again in coming weeks. Uh, you'll see it mentioned again in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul mentions the resurrection there in Philippians. He also mentions at the end of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and in due time we will get to those references and see what they tell us about the resurrection. But for today, we're diving back in at verses 4, 5, and 6. And I don't want this, I should say it this way, we have a lot of ground to cover in this list of of things that Paul could have boasted in, and I don't want this to become two messages, so we're going to jump right into the text and I want to begin by giving you a brief, and I fear a too brief, review of what where we've been through and what we've been through and where we've been so far in Philippians chapter 3. Because as you read through this list and you see, and born of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, etc., and you look at this list of things, it's going to strike you as rather sort of out of place and you're not going to be able to appreciate what Paul is saying unless you're able to connect it back with the beginning of chapter 3 and everything that comes after it. So let me just remind you, we started chapter 3 and saw that the Apostle Paul gave a warning and a rather stern, a rather 
Kurt a rather abrupt warning concerning these false teachers. There were men who had crept into the church. They were masquerading as believers. And they walked around from church to church. And this theology was creeping in and posing a danger to people. This theology that was promoted by these false teachers. And the Apostle Paul calls them evil workers. He calls them dogs. He calls them the mutilators or the lacerators of the flesh, the cutters, the false circumcision in verse 2. And he is warning the Philippians about these doctrines. And then the Apostle Paul contrasts those of us who are the true circumcision with those he's warning us about who are the false circumcision. And he says these are the marks, and we looked at them last time we are in Philippians 3, these are the marks of the true circumcision. Those who belong to the true circumcision worship God in the Spirit. That is to say, we don't worship God through fleshly rituals, fleshly ceremonies, fleshly activities, fleshly things. We belong in the Spirit, we are in the Spirit, and the worship that we offer to God is a spiritual worship, not a physical worship. Our worship is not attached to buildings, it's not attached to liturgy, it's not attached to forms, functions, incense, candles, lightings, overheads, animals, smells. We worship God in the Spirit. Then, the second mark is that we put, we boast in Christ Jesus alone. That is that we have nothing in ourselves. We have nothing about us that might commend us to God. We have nothing in our strengths, in our abilities, in our talents, in our persons, in our nature, in our spirit. Nothing that might commend us to God whatsoever. There is nothing that I can stand before God and say, Lord, I have this to offer to you that He has not first already given to me. So that any response that I offer to God is really just that which God has already worked in me to will and to work for His good pleasure. I have nothing of which to boast in myself or my own abilities before the Lord. The third mark was that we place no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. We place no confidence whatsoever in our abilities or our talents or anything that we offer to the Lord. Our ability to be, our, our, our saving, our sanctifying, and our ultimate security rests with Christ and Christ alone. So we looked at that. Now all of that stands in contrast to these Judaizers, and that's what they were called. Judaizers, these false teachers, this sect, this party of men who came into the church and here was their creed. Not Christ and Christ alone, but Christ plus circumcision. And their creed, what they said was, Jesus is really good as far as He goes, but the problem is He doesn't go far enough. Christ is good as far as He goes, but He's He is not sufficient to save you. You can have Christ and place your faith in Him, but on top of that, you must be circumcised. And you must keep the law of Moses. So all of these Gentile Christians were had heard the Gospel from Paul. They had trusted in Christ. They were saved. They had the Spirit. And then in come the Judaizers who said, Paul's Gospel was good as far as it went, but it doesn't go far enough. What you really need is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the Mosaic Code. Jesus plus the Sabbath. Jesus plus the festivals. Jesus plus the sacrifices. Jesus plus, and they had all of these pluses that they attached on to the end of it. But all of them boiled down to this one big issue with them. The one thing that really cut to the core of it, no pun intended, and that was circumcision. That one thing that to them was the issue. Their hobby horse. Their thing. And their Gospel was not a Gospel of grace. It was not a Gospel of Jesus. It was not a Gospel of faith. Their gospel, Paul says in the book of Galatians, was a false gospel. And it led men to destruction because it brought people under bondage to the law. And the apostle Paul for his whole life and his whole ministry 
fought vehemently against that doctrine. So that's who he's warning them about. Now that warning overshadows this whole chapter 3 because it all has to do with these men as Paul is arguing against them. Now that brings us to chapter to verses 4 through 6. You see, these Judaizers, their confidence was not in Christ. Their confidence was in their circumcision. Their confidence, their boasting was not in Jesus. Their boasting was in their ability to maintain the Old Testament law. Their zeal, their passion for the law of Moses, their conformity to the outward standards, all of the things that showed them to be righteous in the eyes of men. That was their boast. That was their confidence. And so now beginning in verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul says, you want to see zeal? You want to see confidence? You want to see something that somebody can boast in? Let me give you a list. And verses 4 through 6 contain seven items. Seven items in which the Apostle Paul could have boasted if he wanted to. Now those seven items are very conveniently arranged for us into two categories. Let me give them to you. The first category are those things that belong to Paul because of his Jewish descent. Notice the list beginning in verse 6. Circumcised the eighth day, born of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those first four of those seven were Paul's based upon his Jewish descent. The last three of the seven were those things that Paul himself had earned, Paul himself had achieved. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal persecuting the church, and as to righteousness which is found in the law, I was found blameless. Now those last three are those things that Paul achieved. So you have two different categories of accomplishments, achievements, and advantages. Those that were Paul's by birth, and those that were Paul's through a lot of hard work and personal effort. Now the first four, circumcised the eighth day, born of the tribe of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Let me ask you this question. Did the Apostle Paul have anything to do with any of those? Did he have anything to do with any of those? Was it Paul's work that accomplished any of those things? Those belong to Paul just by virtue of the fact that he was born when he was born and he was born to whom he was born. He woke up one day, as it were, and that's what he had. I was circumcised the eighth day. This is my lineage. These are my parents. This is what I have going to me. All of these things are the gracious gift of God and they're handed to Paul on a silver platter, so to speak. But the last three, those last three things, Paul says, these are where I excelled. These are my efforts. Some things were handed to him. Some things were worked out by him. And he lists in those all seven of those things. Now, why does the Apostle Paul, at this point in the book of Philippians, mention this? Why this personal biography? Why this list of seven accomplishments and achievements and benefits and advantages? Why does he do that here? For two reasons. First of all, because the Apostle Paul is answering the Judaizers in their boasts. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, you guys boast of this, 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 and this. Now, let me show you something. If anybody had ground to boast, it would be me. And so by giving his own pedigree and his own accomplishments, he is showing the moral and spiritual and righteous bankruptcy of trusting in your flesh and trusting in those things that you can accomplish for God. A second reason that I think he gives them at this juncture is because there would certainly be Judaizers, and they said this in Corinth, and they said this all over the ancient world about Paul. There would be some who would say, well, the only reason that Paul is decrying these things, the only reason that Paul is being so vicious about these things is because he couldn't achieve any of these things on his own. You see, these things are sour grapes to Paul, as it were. These are things that Paul didn't have, and so of course it's easy for him to say, I don't trust in those things because he didn't have them. And here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying, let me tell you what I had, what I lost, what I forsook, 
for the sake of knowing Christ. And this is quite a list. And let me tell you something. As the Apostle Paul is going through this list, and I don't say this lightly and I don't say this flippantly, I got to the end of this list this last week and I said to myself, I don't think that there was probably any Judaizer, and I would dare say I don't know if there would have been any Jew in Paul's day who could have matched this pedigree. Maybe there was one. Maybe there was two. Maybe there was some Jew somewhere who could have said, yeah, Paul, I got all of that. I can match you on that. But I I really doubt it. When we start to look at all seven of these, you come to the conclusion, how many people in Paul's day could have laid out a pedigree like this? How many people in Paul's day could have said, this is what I have accomplished? I don't think that there were many. So let's look at it. Verse 4. Paul says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, because at the end of verse 3, Paul says, we put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. And so he says in verse 4, I'm going to describe to you and explain to you what I mean by confidence in the flesh. He's not talking by flesh about physical body. He's not talking about sinful nature or any of those other ways that flesh was used. Flesh here is a general term that refers to all of those things about our person, about our accomplishments, our achievements, our pedigree, anything in which we place confidence or trust that is not Christ. It's either Christ or it's your flesh or some fleshly thing. You either place your confidence in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone or some fleshly thing. There's not Jesus and a bunch of other good things that don't belong to the flesh. There's all of the flesh and then there's Jesus. So Paul is, it's an all or nothing thing with Paul. And you're going to see this later on in those verses. It is all or nothing. It's either Jesus, you stand in His righteousness, or you stand clothed in your own self-righteousness before God. But it's one or the other, and you're not partially righteous. I'm not kind of righteous. I'm not mostly righteous. I'm not working on my righteousness. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. It's like being pregnant. You're not kind of pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're either righteous or you're not righteous. You're one of the two, but you're not any degree of righteous. So every person sitting here this morning is either completely unrighteous in the sight of God, or you are as righteous in the sight of God as Jesus Christ, but there's no middle ground. So Paul says when it comes to trusting in the in putting our confidence in something, we either have Christ or we have all of the things of the flesh, all of the accomplishments and achievements that we take pride in. So Paul says in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. And he's not saying I am placing my confidence in the flesh. He is saying if if anybody had reason to place confidence in the flesh, I do. And I have good reason. I could place my confidence in the flesh, Paul says. It would be a misplaced confidence. But I could very well place my confidence in the flesh. It's not that I have nothing that I have achieved, nothing that I have acquired, nothing that I have worked for, nothing to my benefit or my credit. I have a whole list of things to my benefit or my credit. And I could, if I want, place my confidence in the flesh. Look at the last part of verse 4. If anyone else and you obviously know he has in mind the Judaizers, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I love that phrase. I far more. It's as if the Apostle is saying, listen, Judaizer, let's see your pedigree. Put your cards out on the table. Show us your hand. Give us your list. You give me your list of things that you boast in. I'll give you my list of things that I could boast in if I wanted to, and we'll put them side to side and we'll compare notes, shall we? And the Apostle Paul says, if anybody out there 
has any list that you think you can boast in which might earn you righteousness in the sight of God, Paul says, I, far more, I will outstrip you, I will exceed you, I will surpass you, anybody. Now that's why I say, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a pedigree here that nobody else could have matched. He could say with confidence, line up next to me, and I'll show you what I've done, you show me what you've done, let's compare notes, and there's not a single person who could stand toe-to-toe with Saul or Tarsus. You're going to see that as we go into them. Now, the first category, first category of achievements, accomplishments, advantages that Paul had are those things which came to him through his Jewish descent. And there are four of them. Notice what the Apostle Paul says first. Try that word again. First, in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. Literally, it reads, regarding circumcision, an eight-dayer. An eight-dayer. Seven days after my birth, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, why do you think that the Apostle Paul, before he even mentions his birth in the next phrase, why do you think that he mentions circumcision and puts that at the top of the list? Why might that be? What was the number one thing for the Judaizers? Circumcision. So Paul puts that right at the top of the list. You want to make circumcision your big issue? Check. I got that one covered. And I'll tell you something. I can go beyond you. I can surpass you. I was circumcised the eighth day. Now here's the question. How many of the Judaizers could say that they were circumcised on the eighth day? You see, friends, this circumcision that Paul went through, only eight days old, he had nothing to do with this. He didn't ask to be circumcised. He didn't say, look, in obedience to the law, Mom, I would like to be circumcised. He had nothing to do with this whatsoever. This was Paul's. It was a mark of the covenant. It was in strict conformity to the Old Testament law. Leviticus 12, verse 3, and Genesis, I think it's 17, verse 12. Those two passages were stipulated. It had to be on the eighth day. That was the law. Well, Paul had very meticulous parents who made sure that they counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight day, we've got him there and we're circumcising him in conformity to the Old Testament law and in strict compliance to it. Regarding circumcision, Paul says, I was an eight-dayer. And my parents were meticulous about making sure that even as an infant, my life conformed to the Old Testament law. Now, there were a lot of Judaizers and a lot of these false brethren who would not have been able to say, I was circumcised the eighth day. Because some of them had converted to Judaism from other pagan faiths and religions. Some of them had converted to Judaism and at the time of their proselytism or their conversion, that's when they got circumcised. But not so with Paul. No, no, eight days. I was circumcised and eight-dayer. Now all of a sudden, out of all of the people in the nation of Israel, all of the Jews and anybody that might have anything in which to boast, that cuts out a lot of them. That's the wrong word too. That eliminates a lot of competition of those who could have been able to say, this is what I had going for them. Eighth day. Not many Judaizers, not many of his opponents would have been able to say that. The second one, of the nation, or born of the nation of Israel. Born of the nation of Israel. Now the Apostle Paul doesn't say, I was simply a Jew. Jew was a derogatory or kind of a derisive term used by Gentiles to refer to Israelites. And so Paul doesn't say, I'm a Jew, because a person could be a Jew by proselytism. A person could be a Jew by submitting to the Old Testament law, becoming circumcised, and adopting all of the customs. He could make himself a Jew. A Jew outwardly, and a Jew by faith in Abraham's promises, even though he might be a Gentile. Nor does the Apostle Paul say that he was merely of the nation of Israel, because an individual might be of the nation of Israel by adoption, by proselytism, or by a lot of other different means. But the Apostle Paul says, I was born of the nation of Israel. 
And he doesn't merely claim to be a descendant of Abraham and say, I was Abraham's offspring, because who else would be able to say that? Ishmaelites would be able to say that. And the apostle does not say, I was born of Abraham and Isaac, because who else would be able to say that? Ishmaelites and Edomites, all the sons of Esau. But the apostle Paul winnows it down to this very narrow covenant line, I was born of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, who was later called Israel. Now, how many of the Judaizers could say that? Not many, because many of them were proselytes. Many of them converted to Judaism later. But the Apostle Paul says, I am a pure Israelite. I was born of the nation of Israel. I was born of that covenant line. I'm not an outsider coming in. I'm not an outsider trying to make myself look like a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am a pure Israelite. Third, the Apostle Paul says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I've always just read through this, and I've always said to myself, that's fascinating. You're of the tribe of Benjamin. Interesting to know that, Paul. But why does he include that boast in this list of things that he would credit to himself as things of righteousness? What does the tribe of Benjamin have to do with things in which you could boast? There were 12 of the tribes. Well, as it turns out, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the most respected tribes out of all of the sons of Israel. Out of all of those 12 sons, Benjamin had a special place, a very unique tribe, and it was one of the more noble ones. Now, let me recall a few things about the tribe of Benjamin for you. Benjamin was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. He had four women who bore him children. And out of those four, one was his favorite, and it was Rachel. Benjamin was the son of Rachel, his favorite wife. Furthermore, Benjamin was the only son out of all 12 that was born in the land of promise, in the promised land. All of the other sons were born outside of the land of promise, but not Benjamin. Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land. Benjamin also was the tribe that gave Israel its first king, King Saul, after whom Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul was named. They gave Israel their first king. On top of that, Benjamin was the tribe that was loyal to the house of David. After the division of the kingdom, you had Saul, then David, then Solomon. And after Solomon, you had those two foolish sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they had a little family feud. And they went their separate ways. And ten tribes went up and they formed the northern kingdom. Only one tribe was loyal to the house of David and joined with the tribe of Judah to form the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And that was the tribe of Benjamin. On top of that, after the Babylonian exile, when the Jews came back to the land, it was the tribe of Benjamin that formed the core group of people that comprised that fellowship. Number six, if you're counting, the land that was allotted to Benjamin, that tribe, included the holy city of Jerusalem and thus the temple. So that was all within the border of Benjamin. And then Mordecai and Esther were both of the tribe of Benjamin, and they were instrumental in delivering the Jews from the plot of Haman in the book of Esther. So Benjamin was one of the most noble, the most respected. It's not without its blights. You read the last few chapters of the book of Judges and you say, man, those Benjamites, Benjaminites, those guys were weirdos, wicked, corrupt. Well, yeah, every tribe had its dark spots, but all told, in general, all things considered, Benjamin stood out among the twelve. So it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not only a descendant of Israel, but listen, out of all of Israel's sons, I belong to his favorite so to speak. I could boast about that. It's not like I belong to Gad or Asher or Nephtali or one of these other no-name tribes out there somewhere. I am a descendant of Benjamin, a respectable tribe. 
Now beyond that, the fact that the Apostle Paul says this indicates to us this, and this is key. Paul was able to trace his lineage all the way back to Benjamin. Not every Jew in those days was able to do that. You talk to the average Jew and you could have said, trace for me your lineage. And they would say, well, we can go back to such and such a time, but after that it's a little murky. We're not really sure what goes on after that. There's kind of a gap in the records, a gap in our genealogy. But by faith we take it that we also descended from such and such and and family tradition says we came from this tribe. For a lot of Jews back then, that was a bit murky. They didn't all weren't all able to trace their lineage. But the Apostle Paul is able to say, I came from Israel, I came from the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm able to trace my lineage. And if Paul was a good Pharisee, he would have been able to give you all of his fathers and his fathers and his grandfathers and his grandfathers' grandfathers all the way back to Benjamin. The Apostle Paul says, I can trace it all the way back. Now, here's that question. How many Judaizers, how many Jews would be able to say, I belong to a respectable tribe, and I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham himself? Who could say that? You see the competition starting to fall off pretty quick? We haven't even got to the good stuff yet. Number four, Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Kind of an interesting phrase that he gives there. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And commentators are kind of divided as to what this means. But here's my shot at it. It comes down to meaning one of two things. Hebrew of Hebrews, the word Hebrew there is used also in Acts chapter 6. And it was used sort of in a, um, slang is not the right word, but a, a very common way of describing Jews who were separate from and free from Hellenistic influence. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, there was a controversy within the church. They had Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews who came out of the dispersion, who were very, they were Greek speakers, they didn't speak the, the, the native Hebrew and Aramaic, they were, they were very Hellenistic, Greek, in their thinking, in their dress, in their behavior, in their actions, in their language, in their commerce, in everything that they did. But then there were what were called the Hebrews, and they're called native Hebrews in the NASB, and it's the same term that's used here. Those native Hebrews were the Hebrews that maintained an adherence to Aramaic and Hebrew as their mother tongue. They were separate from, distinct from, any kind of Hellenistic or Greek influence. So it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, although born in the city of Tarsus, remember he was raised in Jerusalem, although born in a Gentile city, surrounded by Gentile culture, I am a Hebrew in every sense of the word. And I think it likely refers to the fact that the Apostle Paul spoke Hebrew as his native tongue. Acts chapter 22, we read it for the scripture reading. He begins to address the crowd in the Hebrew dialect. He was fluent in it. Now he's also fluent in Koine Greek, but he was a speaker of Aramaic and Hebrew. And it's as if the Apostle Paul says, I have been separated from all Gentile, Greek, pagan influence in every way, and I speak the mother tongue, the mother language. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. But beyond that, it can also mean, and I think the Apostle Paul may mean both of these things, it can also mean that the Apostle Paul is saying, as far as he knows, and as far as he can prove, there was not a drop of Gentile blood anywhere in his genealogy. I am a Hebrew born of only Hebrews. You can search my genealogy, go back as far as you want to Abraham, and you will not find one drop of Gentile blood that has ever intermarried, intermingled, intermixed, or entered into this at all in any way. I can trace my lineage back, and it is Hebrew after Hebrew after Hebrew after Hebrew. He was a card-carrying, 100% purebred Jew. That's how you would say it. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Now I ask you, how many Judaizers would be able to say that? 
How many Judaizers, how many Jews from Paul's day would be able to say, I speak fluently the mother tongue, not few, and furthermore, there's not a drop of Gentile blood that courses through these veins. I am pure Israelite. How many would be able to say that? After 500 years and more of a dispersion, when they were intermingled with the people. Not many. Not many. Now listen, all four of these things are things that the Apostle Paul had handed to him, as it were, on a silver platter. He had nothing to do with any of those. You recognize that? Nothing to do with any of those. He didn't choose his lineage, didn't choose his race, didn't choose his religion, didn't choose his parents, his grandparents, or anything. It was all of those predecessors of Paul who had everything to do with guarding that line and making sure that it stayed pure. And the Apostle Paul was just born on the scene, given a name, he belonged to a tribe. All of this by the sovereign, gracious hand of God was just handed to the Apostle Paul. But if you know anything about Paul, then you know this. The Apostle Paul was not somebody to have something handed to him and then let it go to waste. The Apostle Paul was the type of person that if you gave him something, he would make gold out of it. He was the type of person who would be handed a pedigree, handed a list of advantages like this, and would say, I'll take that and boy, I'll go through the roof with it. Roof. I'll go through the roof with it. I'll take this to the nth degree. I'll pursue my benefits all the way to where they, wherever they may bring me. And I will exceed, I will work harder than everybody else to make sure that what I have been given doesn't go to waste. He said that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15. Of all the apostles, I'm the one that's untimely born. I'm not fit to be called an apostle, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And yet, it was not just the grace of God in me, but I worked, Paul said, harder than all the rest of the apostles. That's the apostle Paul. I worked harder than all the rest of them. This is given to me as a gift of grace. Paul says, I'll take that and I'll work with that. And boy, did he ever. So this next set of advantages, the last three, are those things that Paul had through his own effort and his own works. So let's look at number five. Number five. Verse six. As to zeal. No, sorry. Verse five. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, in Paul's day, that's all you had to say to answer any objections that anybody might have about you and your approach or your respect for the Mosaic law. Paul could say, when it comes to the law, I know you Judaizers, you think you got this one wrapped up. You think you're zealous for the law of Moses. You think you're big law guys. You think that you can trust in the law and boast in the law and you love the law and you guard the law, but I want you to know something. When it comes to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, that would end the discussion. That's why Paul doesn't elaborate on it. He just simply says... I was a Pharisee. That's all you had to say. He was raised as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of his religion. And the Apostle Paul lays claim to something that most people would have thought, wow, a Pharisee. Now listen, that's quite an accomplishment. You didn't just go in and register as a Pharisee. You didn't just join the Pharisees by signing a card. You didn't just get the dress and don the phylacteries and and hang out with Pharisees and become a Pharisee. It was very strict to become a Pharisee. And the Apostle Paul says, when it comes to the law, this was my approach. I was a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee. That's strictness. Paul says in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, I was a Jew born in, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are today. In Acts 23, verse 6, the Apostle Paul, when he's standing before the Sanhedrin, you remember half of them are Sadducees, half of them are Pharisees. And he discerns this, and he's on trial for his life. And the apostle says, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, born a son of Pharisees. 
And I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And then everything went to chaos after that. Then when he gave his testimony to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 5, Paul says, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. In Galatians 1.14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more zealous for our ancestral traditions. Now, what do you know about a Pharisee? You want strict? You want legalism? You want outward righteousness? The Apostle Paul had all of that. You think he was some liberal when it came to the Old Testament? No, you know who the liberals were of Paul's day? They were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in miracles. They rejected all the books of the Old Testament except the first five written by Moses. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. Those were the theological liberals of Paul's time. Paul says, I wasn't a theological liberal. I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative. I'm a strict. I I, I belong to the strictest sect of our religion. And I was educated under Gamaliel. Do you know who Gamaliel was? He's a legend even today among Jewish rabbis. Gamaliel was a legend in his own time. You didn't just walk up to Gamaliel and say, hey, I'd like to like to have you tutor me. No, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. You know what it takes to get into a school like Gamaliel's school? Talk about strict Jewish rabbis. Gamaliel was off the charts. This guy was a legend in his own time. So well respected, so looked up to, so admired in every circle among all Jews, liberals, conservatives, everybody. He was a figure to be reckoned with. And Paul says, I was educated by Gamaliel. Friends, the Apostle Paul sat at the top of the Pharisaical world. The top of the Pharisaical world. This is not some Jewish boy sitting in a corner studying under a lamp in Jerusalem somewhere. This is a man who stood on top of everything else. He was a darling among all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the high priests and all of the ruling class in the city of Jerusalem. And this is just on a side, no extra charge for this one, but I wonder this sometimes. The Apostle Paul and Jesus were the same age, within a year or two of each other. And the Apostle Paul got converted just about two years, has to be less than two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Now I ask myself this, having grown up in the city of Jerusalem, been among the elite Pharisees in the city of Jerusalem, was there ever a time, and I just wonder this, was there ever a time when Jesus and the Apostle Paul had words? In the city of Jerusalem. Was there ever a time when Paul, Saul then, stood in the crowd and listened to this Nazarene Galilean preacher whom he detested rebuke him scathingly for his hypocrisy and his self-righteousness. Could Paul have sat there and listened to that and just ground his teeth and thought to himself, I can't wait for the opportunity. Someday we're going to kill him. It's possible. I don't know what the answer to it is. But if everything that we find out about Paul in the New Testament is true, with his connections and his abilities and his skill and his talent, his education, his standing as a Pharisee, if all of that is true, friends, He was one of the elite. Now here's the question. What Judaizer, what Jew could say that? What Jew? How many Judaizers could lay claim to having been educated by Gamaliel? How many Judaizers could lay claim to having been born the son of Pharisees? How many Judaizers could say, oh yeah, I was a Pharisee too when it came to the law? None could. Number six, as concerning zeal, a persecutor of the church. 
Now, what is it about zeal that makes the Apostle Paul want to boast in it or consider it something to place his confidence in? Why does he say that? You you want zeal? I'll I'll show you zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. Zeal was something that was kind of a two-sided coin. It could be used positively in the New Testament, and the word is. It can be used also negatively. Negatively in the sense of jealousy or, or envy, but the word is also used in a positive sense, as it is here, of having a passion for truth and an ardor and a, and a vigor to your life and being zealous for something in a good sense. And here the Apostle Paul says, when it came to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I had all of the zeal that anybody could want. I had all of the zeal that anybody could get. And you want evidence of my zeal? I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That's how zealous I was. And when it came to zeal... In the Old Testament and in, in Paul's time, there's two sides to zeal. There's, it's a two-sided coin, as it were. One side has to do with loving God. I love God with all my heart. I love God. I love His Word. I love His righteousness. I love holiness. I love all those things that God loves. But there's another side to zeal. And it's hating those things that God hates. You can't be zealous if you say, Oh, I love God with all of these things. But then all of the things that God hates, you're fine with. That's not zeal. If you're zealous in the New Testament in the biblical sense, then you love God, but at the same time you hate those things that dishonor Him, that disrespect Him, that mar His glory, that impugn His integrity, that attack His Word. Those things you must hate also if you're going to be zealous. So it requires a love for God and a hatred for things that God hates. That's zeal. Now the Apostle Paul is saying, I had that kind of zeal. I had the kind of zeal where I loved God, His righteousness and His truth, but I also hated those things that he thought God hated. You want evidence of it? I persecuted the church, he said. That's evidence of his zeal. Like Phineas. Do you remember the story of Phineas in the Old Testament? Numbers chapter 25, there was a plague because two people had violated the law of God and Phineas took a spear, went in and killed them both and the plague was stopped. Then you flip over to Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31 and it says because of his zeal in, in stopping that plague, righteousness was accredited to Phineas. Phineas demonstrated his righteousness and his faith by checking the plague in his zeal and being willing to kill those people who were lawbreakers in the eyes of God. That's zeal. That was an honorable thing. That was a noble thing in Paul's day. And the Judaizers would be able to say, hey, we're zealous. We love God. We love His law. We're just trying to make circumcision the thing here. We're just trying to get people on board with this thing because we love God so much. But Paul says, I was like Phineas. I hated and attacked those things that hated God and that attacked God. So in Paul's mind, as he looked at Christians in the church, he saw something that denied the law of Moses, that attacked the glory of God, that didn't hold to the truth of God. He saw a threat to his religion, a threat to his heritage, a threat to his nation and his people and God and God's glory and God's truth and God's word and God's law. And Paul said, I'll kill it. I'll destroy it. Now, I ask you this. How many Judaizers could say that they had that type of zeal. Who in Paul's day could honestly say, I was willing to travel from city to city to town to town to imprison and to beat and to persecute and to murder all Christians. And I set my heart on destroying the church of God. Who could say that? Only one person. Saul of Tarsus. And Saul says, you want to see zeal? I persecuted the church. I'll show you how much, how passionate I was for the glory of God. The problem was he was wrong. He was zealous, but he was wrong. The last one, as pertaining to righteousness found in the law, I was blameless. It's kind of difficult, isn't it? 
Is the Apostle Paul claiming to be perfect? What's he talking about? When it comes to that righteous standard that the law asked me to maintain, Paul could say with all honesty, this is powerful, I was blameless. Now he's not claiming to be perfect, and he's not talking about the inward hidden faults, the faults, the, the, the sins of thought and the sins of conscience and the sins of the heart, those hidden sins. The Apostle Paul is judging this from the perspective of the flesh. Remember, he's talking about placing confidence in the flesh. So that's the perspective, from the outward perspective, from man's perspective, from the horizontal perspective. When it came to those things found in the law and the righteous requirements of the law, Paul could honestly say, I was blameless. He is saying, I had kept all of the outward moral standards of the law. Anything that the law required, I fulfilled. Anything that the law demanded, I did. Every ceremony, every sacrifice, every jot, every tittle, every little thing I did. And there was nobody in Paul's day who could say he has failed to keep the law in this way. But the problem was not not evaluating Paul and his keeping of the law from the outward perspective. The problem with Paul was that he didn't keep the law in his heart. He had moral failings and he didn't have righteousness. But from the human perspective, from the outside perspective, Paul could say when it came to the standards of the law, I was blameless. There was nobody who could point to Paul and say, he's a lawbreaker. He didn't do this or he did this. Nobody could do that. And now I ask you, how many Jews, how many Pharisees, how many Judaizers in Paul's day could say that? This is quite a pedigree, is it not? How many people could line up something like this and say, circumcised on the eighth day of the pure nation of Israel? Of the tribe of Benjamin, a respectable tribe. I can trace my lineage all the way back to him. I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm unpolluted by any Greek or Hellenistic influence. I speak the mother tongue. I've been untouched by any of that pagan culture. I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel when it came to the law. I was a strict conservative. I was a Pharisee. I was born a Pharisee. I was born the son of Pharisees. I have a long line of Pharisees. I've been a Pharisee my whole life. Not only that, but you want to see zeal? I can show you zeal. I persecuted the church of God. I demonstrated that I loved God and that I hated those things that I thought God hated. And I was willing to commit my life to the destruction of anything that might mar His glory. And beyond that, when it came to all of the outward requirements of the law, all of the feasts and the festivals and the temple and all of the outward things that men look for, I was blameless. And we would look at a pedigree like that and we would say, hey, you got it, Paul. You just keep trusting in that, buddy. That'll take you a long ways. But is that what Paul does? I love the next few verses. All of those things that were gained to me, dung, so that I could have Christ. Friends, there are people today, they fill churches, I hope that there are none here today, who trust in the same type of things that Paul had every reason to trust in. They trust in their genealogy, their lineage. My parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, and so of course I'm a Christian because I'm a white American male or a female, and so we're all Christians if we're all Americans. Or I was baptized as an infant by strong, religious, faithful parents who kept the requirements, and man, they really wanted me in, and so I was baptized early, so I'm in. No, you're not. I've always been Christian since I grew up. No, you haven't. I've got all of these things going for me. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't date girls that do. I'm, I'm, I'm stand. I'm 
flawless when it comes to uh, to all of my conduct with my parents. I obey my parents. I go to church every Sunday. I give my money. I serve in Awana. I do this. I do that. I do the other thing. Do those mean anything in the righteousness game? They don't. And they can't. And there's not a single person sitting here who could lay claim to one-tenth of what the Apostle Paul could lay claim to. Not one-tenth of it. And yet the Apostle Paul can say, these mean nothing to me. If anybody has a reason to boast, I could boast, but I won't boast. Why? Because those who are the true circumcision worship God in the Spirit, boast in Christ and Christ alone, and place no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. In the next few weeks, I'm going to I'm going to give you all kinds of ways that we place confidence in the flesh. There was a time in my life, in my Christian life, when I placed a lot of confidence in my flesh. Not for salvation, but for sanctification. For being righteous in the sight of God after I got saved. Thinking that by doing certain things and exercising certain disciplines and avoiding certain things, that I was somehow increasing my righteousness in the sight of God. And it simply doesn't work that way. You see, friends, until you get to the point where you say to yourself, I am a wretch, I am a sinner, I am a worthless worm, I am a lawbreaker, and I deserve the worst of hell, the lowest of places in the pit of darkness, the worst of eternal torments, because I am the chief of sinners. Until you get to the point of saying that, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. You have to come to the point of saying, I have nothing to offer to Him. I am a wretch. I'm a wretch in my own eyes. I'm a wretch in God's eyes. And if all things were right and true and good, I would be a wretch in everybody else's eyes. Until you get to the point of saying that, there's no amazing grace by which you can be saved if you don't realize that you're a wretch like me. That's what salvation is. Of all the things that Paul could boast of, he says this and this alone, Christ. Why couldn't all of those other things save him? I don't want to leave you hanging all week. We're going to look at it in more detail next week, but just in case you're wondering, I don't want you walking out of here and saying, but he didn't tell us how it is that you can be saved. What you need is not just to have your sins forgiven, not just to have your wretchedness taken away. What you need is righteousness. That's what every person needs. I need a righteousness. I need something from outside of me that I cannot create or manufacture or have. I don't have it. I'm not a righteous individual. I have no way of being righteous. So how does a person become righteous? The answer is verses 7 to 9. You throw it all away and say, i got nothing to offer. So I'm going to ask that Jesus Christ would give me His righteousness. I want the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, not a righteousness that comes on the basis of the law. We'll look at that in more detail next week. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we thank You that You have solved our deepest and most severe problem, and that is a lack of righteousness. We are wretches. We are worms. We are horrible. We are nothing in Your sight. We have nothing to offer You. We have nothing in which to boast. And yet, God, You have loved those such as us. You have loved sinners enough to send Your Son to die on a cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sin that we owe before You. We thank You that He died in our place. We thank You that You offer to us forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and Christ's righteousness. Thank you that we do not have to work for salvation. Thank you that we do not have to work to keep our salvation. 
And thank you that we do not have to work even to be sanctified, but it is all your work. It is all by your grace. We are grateful, we are humbled, and we rejoice before you this morning, and we exult in Christ and Christ alone. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.